around here. It's wonderful. Um, been listening to a lot of John Waters and just <laughs> listening to a lot of John Waters. Just what are you musicals? <laughs> uh, musicals, <laughs> just hairspray, really. Not. <laughs> I was gonna say. I think he only did the one because I didn't realize until like years later that like the original hairspray movie was not a musical. I always thought it was. Really? Yeah. Someone saw the movie and was like, this would make a fantastic musical, which I feel like is psychotic because wow. it's an absolutely outrageous story. I mean, it's a great story, right. but like, but yeah, the original movie is a lot like weirder. Obviously, yeah, I mean, they did it with Mean him. Girls and Legally Blonde. It's so true. I feel like you can turn anything into a musical if you got a catchy song. Right Nowadays, there. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but the original movie, um, not I mean, there was a lot of cool music in it because it obviously surrounded the Corny Collins show. Right. Um, but but yeah. Someone wrote all those songs. I didn't know that yeah. at all. So never mind. So extra fun fact for this podcast that is chock full of fun facts. Yeah. And most of them aren't about John Waters. No, they're not. Because this is her story. <laughs> On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women get this have nuance <laughs> and they have for quite some time um but keep in mind we are drinking the entire time <laughs> and we aren't historians yeah so there are a lot of mistakes and closer to the end of the podcast we definitely get off topic a lot more mm. um so be prepared so sometimes we get kind of personal um because we are usually like a beer and a cocktail deep and halfway through our second cocktail right so, and then possibly sometimes another beer or wine or champagne or another cocktail if we do like an interview before yeah this. so sometimes it's a little slopper than others but you know what i will say we always have a good time mm-hmm. <laughs> just like you're busy having a good time right now exactly you're out it's summer maybe you're sitting by the water and you can't really <sighs> see th- your phone because Mm-mm. the sun's so bright Mm-mm. So, and you, maybe you have it in a Ziploc bag to keep it safe from all the sand and stuff. So you're listening to this story and you're wondering while we're talking, what the heck do these women look like? So we're going to tell you, we're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? So I'm doing a woman who's known as Mary Bowser or Bowser. Okay. But really her name's Mary Jane Richards and she was a black slave born into slavery from slave parents. And the most famous picture of her, she's in this full length, like formal 1800s looking dress with a hat and sleeves and a belt and an umbrella, but it's not her. Oh. Um, so when you Google her, <laughs> this picture will come up, but then all the other like history websites are like, that's not her. It's oh my another gosh. woman named Mary Bowser. What a ruse. What's happening? It's crazy. <laughs> so I, there's a lot of misinformation about her. Okay. So I couldn't really splice out which pictures have or have not been verified. Most likely all of them are not verified, but there is this really famous pencil drawing that... Um, looks like it's a more recent pencil drawing and it's a beautiful black woman with full lips and arched eyebrows and her hair is kind of tied up in a headscarf. Um, okay. Um, so no idea. <laughs> you know, that just, I had a sprig of information or, um, I don't know what, what to call it. Um, inspiration is uh-huh. what I mean. Um, I feel like sweet listener Vero should have a podcast called Verified <laughs> and true. Vero should just go in and fix all the mistakes that we make yeah. um, and make a whole podcast about it. <laughs> so this is the pencil drawing. She's beautiful. Yeah. So beautiful. My gosh. And then I, I've got to show you this picture. That's not her. 
<gasps> this is not her. Okay, not her, but that is a very tall woman. Yeah. Whoever she is. Super tall. Um, or maybe Vera, you could just like do other things that people misunderstand. Oh yeah. You know, just verified. Verified. I love it. <laughs> Million okay. dollar idea. <laughs> Who are you doing and what does she look like? I think I know what she looks like. Everyone knows what Coretta Scott King looks like. She is just this breathtaking woman. Oh, yeah. Truly. She is a lighter-skinned black woman with dark hair, typically worn, kind of like a slightly curled bob. Um, and it's, her hair is always like pushed up and away from her face. You know Mm. what I'm saying? Except Mm -hmm. for like in the early days where she has like little baby bangs. Um, she has very high cheekbones, smile lines, which surround this very demure smile and eyes that were embellished by perfectly arched eyebrows that really furrow as she listens intensely, which she does often. (laughs) And they're sometimes marked by like a bit of a tired look. Like, I feel like she has kind of like hollowed eyes. You know what I'm saying? Like just kind of sunken back a little. They're kind of sunken back a little. Yeah. Um, and it's understandable because being the backbone of the civil rights movement is like really exhausting work. So (laughs) not that I know. (laughs) Um, but yeah, but that's what she looked like. And oh my gosh, she was always dressed like so well too. Like, she has, like, you know how, like, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, like, she has a ton of, like, hats. Credit mm-hmm. Scott King had some very cool hats back in the day. And just, like, gloves, big coats, like, always looked so fucking good. I'm jealous of people who look good in a hat. Me too. And these are, like, weird hats, too. Like, weird, like, 60s hats. Like, British family hats? <laughs> Not even. They're, like, taller and, like, Ooh. I don't, like... Midge Maisel is the only other person that I see like wearing these hats and like they're and like, you know, with like a giant brooch on it, but they look like kind of slouchy. They're wild. <laughs> um, but there are specifically these pictures of her at a protest that we'll talk about um, where she has these hats on. I'm like, you were marching around all day wearing this goddamn hat. I need to lo- I need to look up these hats. They're beautiful. OK, Can't um, OK, so. <laughs> So what am I drinking? There's totally a peach in it. Is she from Georgia? There, a lot of her story takes place in okay, Georgia, okay. but she's from Alabama. Um, Alabama. But Alabama. <laughs> um, but yeah, but a lot of the story takes place in Georgia and Alabama and just a lot of those like Southern states. Um, so I wanted to kind of make something with peach, but have peach not be like the center of it, um, but for it to be like kind of sweet. So this is called um, King the queen <laughs> um and it is an ounce and a half of bourbon a half an ounce of butter butterscotch schnapps a half an ounce of triple sec um and you shake that all together with muddled peaches and then you pour it into a glass and garnish it with a slice of peach cheers, cheers. wow this is good mm-hmm. i feel like it needs a little more butternuts butter butternut butterscotch schnapps actually i was worried it would be overpowering i really like it it's like when i'm tasting it it's not dry but it's not sweet yeah it's a very interesting like it's hitting on different notes at the mm-hmm. same time and not overpowering in any way which i yeah. really like i really thought that it was going to be overly sweet which mm-hmm. is why i cut back on the butterscotch um but i feel like it might need just a tad more or like a sprinkle of sugar or something i don't know but yeah. Or it's also just like a nice kind of clean drink, too. <laughs> yes. Very nice and relaxed. Um, so what do you know about Carita Scott King? Okay. So she's married to the the literal, like, head of the yeah. civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that she is an activist and mm-hmm. in of her own right. I know that 
mine and producer song references her which i really 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 like okay so (laughs) don't laugh um you know the song it's like um it's neo and fabulous (laughs) you know the one i'm a movement by myself but i'm a force when we're together you know that song. i don't know that song really great song but there's a line where he says something to the effect of um Without my Coretta Scott, how am I going to be king? Mm. Very cute. Kind of like what you did with the title of your cocktail. Mm -hmm. So um, I've always really appreciated that. (laughs) And that's what I know about her. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So are you ready to hear her story? I am. It's going to be a bumpy ride, isn't it? Yep. Um, So I was a little upset that there really wasn't more on her. It was Wikipedia where I got most of this information because it was spliced together from like short clips and short articles from all over the internet because there is, I mean, there are books written about her, but like, you know, we don't have time in a week to like read a whole book, you know, like, so I really got most of it from Wikipedia and cause there's no, um, and every YouTube video and every podcast was a very like big overview. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I, I like to get like the nitty gritty details of this kind of right. stuff. So, yeah. so yeah, so I got some, most from Wikipedia and then some like history.com articles and then other small articles and around the internet. Um, but yeah, so Coretta Scott was born in Alabama on April 27th, 1927 to parents Obadiah Scott and Bernice McMurray Scott. Obadiah, what a good name. What a good name. She was the third of four children born to a family who had direct slave ancestry. And by direct, I mean her great-grandmother Delia Scott, who acted as the midwife when she was born, was a former enslaved person. Wow. So it's like very close range, um, her family. Isn't that always surprising when like somebody who's like alive knew somebody who in was the enslaved? 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. In the 2000s. Yeah. That one of their family members they actually met was it's an enslaved person. So wild. Yeah. It's terrible. Um, but as with a lot of families descended from slaves, they had very mixed ancestry, including Irish and native American. Um, it goes very deep. Um, I couldn't find too much information on her childhood, but I do know that her mother was an incredible musician who was a pillar in the community. She was the school bus driver, the church pianist, and whatever role her husband needed her to fill in his many business ventures. Um, Obadiah Scott was just a man of like many careers. He was a police officer. He owned a clothing store at one point, a general store and a lumber mill. And he was very well known in the community for being the first black man to own a car, like in that area. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So her dad's pretty well off for being a black man living in the South as much as he could. Yeah. Because there obviously is a lot of like racism they're still experiencing. So they were better off than some, but they were still like. I mean, Coretta talks about them being poor at different times because he also, he was an entrepreneur, but I think almost like a forced entrepreneur. Like he kept, I think that he kept getting like pushed out of careers. I don't know that for sure, but, um, and, but because he was like a more successful black man than most could be, he and his family became a target. And when Coretta was 15, her father's sawmill and their home was burned to the ground by a white arsonist. So racial violence was not unknown to her family. Wow. 
And Coretta seemed to be a little bit of everything growing up. She was a hard worker like her dad. She would pick cotton with her siblings in the field to earn extra money um, at the age of 10, which makes me feel like they did still like need some extra money. Um, but they were all just like such hard workers. Um, she was also a very gifted musician like her mother. She excelled at piano and choir. And she was a self-described tomboy. She said that she spent her childhood running around, wrestling boys, climbing trees, and apparently once hitting her cousin with an axe. (laughs) Whoa, that sounds like a very Greenwood thing to do. Uh, Yeah, because my brothers both did that. I know. Um, Producer's head has been hit with an axe. Unbelievable. Um, But as Coretta grew older, education began to play a much more central role in their household. Uh, Coretta's family had historically lacked access to good education, so her mother made a vow. She said, my children are going to college, even if it means I I only have but one dress to put on. So the Scott children all attended a one-room elementary school five miles from their home and then were later bused to Lincoln Normal School, which, despite being nine miles from their home, was the closest black high school in Marion, Alabama. Unbelievable. Five miles? That was nine. Nine? The the one-room elementary school was five miles. This is nine. But thankfully, they had a need in the community for these kids to get to school. So Coretta's mother stepped in and she became the bus driver for all the kids in their area to get them to school. That's so beautiful. It's incredible. It's like your mom's suburban. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Coretta graduated valedictorian from Lincoln Normal School in 1945, where she played trumpet and piano, sang in the chorus, and participated in school musicals. She is like a child prodigy when it comes to music. She's so good. This is three weeks in a row with a valedictorian. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Bingo. Um, After high school, she attended Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. How long was her skirt, though? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Inside joke. Inside joke. Um, Yeah, we we played an Antioch school when I was in high school, and these poor girls had to play volleyball in like ankle length skirts like maxi skirts it was outrageous because they weren't allowed to wear pants or shorts or shorts well and the the boys weren't and i will say there's a little bit of gender equality there because the boys were also not allowed to wear shorts when they played sports so they all had to wear sweatpants (laughs) which knees knees are the the devil knees are the (laughs) devil you heard it here first um (laughs) um so antioch college was a historically white school which was, that's all schools. I don't know if you can call any school a historically <laughs> white school. Um, they, they all were, um, except for historically black colleges. Right, like Howard. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, uh, But they wanted to diversify their school, so they set up a scholarship program for non-white students to get diversity on campus. Um, so both Coretta and her sister Edith took advantage of this. And Edith was actually the first African-American to attend Antioch on this kind of scholarship situation. Wow. Um, She was joined by two other black female students in the fall of 1943. And I just like being the first is so difficult. So I just want to give a shout out to Edith because that must be so hard. Yeah. Difficult and scary. So scary. Especially because you're moving from Alabama to Ohio. You're not even close. Like you can't even just like pop home if you're like not having a good time. (laughs) So at Antioch, she studied music and education under the first black chairperson of a department, Walter Anderson. 
And it was here that she really started to become more politically active because she's around college students. They're teaching her things. She's like, wow, like I knew I experienced racism, but like people can organize here. Like this is incredible. Um, and they really had to start organizing because there is some racist bullshit in the area. Um, so surprise, surprise. Um, so she is getting, you know, like a music and education degree. And when you get an education degree, you have to like go do student teaching, but the local school board denied her request to do her student teaching. So she can't get her degree. So she couldn't finish her degree. She was like, then why the fuck am I here? That's outrageous. Like, you brought me here, and I can't even finish this degree, so this scholarship is worth nothing. I mean, are there any black schools around where she could do her student teaching? I don't know. It just said that they wouldn't allow her, so she appealed to the Antioch College Administration, but they said they really couldn't do anything about it. So they're like, all right, we'll compromise. We'll give you a job here at the college's associated laboratory school. <laughs> She's like, okay. okay. So she ends up joining her campus chapter of the NAACP and the college's race relations and civil liberties committees to see if she could kind of implement some kind of change. Um, so she's doing all this, but, you know, obviously she's a young woman, like, on her own up in college, um, and so she has to get a, a job. So she starts babysitting around for different families, and would you like to know who she babysat <laughs> in college? Is it a white family or a black family? A white family. It's You're never going to guess it. Never going to guess me. Uh, um, okay. She <laughs> babysat in Alabama. Bama? She's no, in- this is Ohio. Okay, she's in Ohio. I can't even think of any famous person from Ohio. I so. can't either. She babysat Johnny Cash's niece. You know what's so funny? His <laughs> name is John, but it's not Johnny Cash's niece. Damn. Um, John Lithgow from Third Rock from the Sun. No way. Isn't that crazy? I read that and I, and I was like, that has to be like made up. And then I found the actual interview where, where he talks about it to Jimmy Fallon. That Coretta Scott King was his childhood was his babysitter. childhood babysitter. And he was like, yeah. And then I became like a famous actor and we ran into each other at an event. And she was like, Johnny. And he was like, she remembered me and I remembered her. That's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. So bananas. Um, <laughs> yeah, I never would have guessed that. Not never would have guessed it. Never. Um, after she received her BA from Antioch, she received a scholarship to the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston to continue her education. And it was at this school where she met a man who had changed her life forever. This man was Forever. named Martin Luther King Jr. What a uh, name. <laughs> and he was new in town. And he, <laughs> and he asked a friend of his to set him up with, you know, a nice Southern girl. So she was like, okay, like here are three girls that like I think you might be interested in. First two girls just didn't spark with. And then it came time for Chris. So he calls her up. He asks her out. And she's like really not interested. She was like, I'm like busy. I'm doing my own thing. Like I'm just not really into like dating or anything right now. Just trying to play the trumpet. I just want to play the trumpet all day long, nonstop. Um, but her friend convinced her. She was like, this guy has a really bright future and I think you would really hit it off. So she agreed to go out with him. And the first thing she thought was, wow, he's a lot shorter than I thought. Um <laughs> But the two got along just fine. How and tall is Martin Luther King Jr.? Ooh, I'm I'll gonna, find out. Okay. <laughs> you go. I'm going to guess 5'8". 
eight. This is our Because I feel like that's like, you know, like quote unquote short for a man, you know, even okay, though. Before we type it in, I'm going under. Ooh, okay. Five, seven. Ah! I was so close. Price is right. He's exactly my height. I win. Okay. Very exciting. We have one thing in common. Um, <laughs> Malcolm X. Malcolm okay, Jr. Six, four. Oh my gosh. He must have towered over him. Yep. Maybe that's why they didn't get along. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> really downplaying the race relations of the 60s here. Um, it's, <laughs> it's all about height. Um, so, and I think this is really interesting. She like really was not smitten with him, but it seemed like he was. King told her like very quickly. I think it was only like their second date that she had all the qualities he was looking for in a wife. Okay, Ted Mosby. Which he was like, um... <laughs> I mean, I don't really know how you can see that. You don't even know me. But he was assured and he asked her to see her again. And she was like kind of intrigued. So she accepted his invitation to another party. Soon the two started seeing each other regularly and having these deep political and religious conversations that went like through the night. And I freaking love those. And King wrote to his mother after two weeks that he found the woman that he was going to marry. But his parents weren't sure about the match. They didn't like that she had her own dreams and career plans. And King's father, so Martin Luther Sr., told her straight up, a career in music is not suitable for the wife of a minister, and then proceeded to ask if she was really serious about his son, because Martin had a lot of options. He had a lot to offer, to which she responded, well, I have a lot to offer as well. And also, can we talk about the fact that, like, music isn't appropriate for a pastor's wife? That is, like, one of the main things that they like do like they play the so piano many and pastors sing. wives are in music like what yeah. are you talking about that is outrageous like i would think being involved in any religious uh institution would call for some sort of musical background yeah but he Weird. just didn't want her to have any sort of career outside of being his son's wife i mean it was long enough ago that if she was looking to have a career in music in the sense of, like, a famous person, I could see that. You know how, like, older actors were, like, women right. were, like, seen as sex workers? I think that, honestly, she just wanted to be, like, a music teacher. Because that's, like, what she... Oh, yeah. She was getting her degree in education. She was getting her degree in education and music. Like, that's outrageous. Um, and he didn't like her response. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. So he went to her sister, Edith, and he was like, he literally like took her out to lunch. It was like, what do you think about this? And she was like, uh, I mean, I think Coretta would make a wonderful wife for your son, but she also doesn't need to bargain for a husband. Like Coretta's fine. She doesn't need your son. <laughs> and obviously he still wasn't very convinced. Um, he just felt like she was too strong willed and he also like didn't like that she was from Alabama because <laughs> he's like, we're a Georgia family. Um, oh my gosh. Call me Auburn, out. Georgia state. I don't know what's going on there, but there's something um, I know because I went to Georgia once and the freaking Outback Steakhouse was alive with tension <laughs> after the 
Georgia Alabama game. <laughs> I don't know anything about like sports rivalries of the South. It is so serious. Like I thought someone was going to just like take the steak out of that big slab of brown bread and stab someone with so it. So there's about to be looting and rioting in the streets over college football. Yes, right, right, right. Um. <laughs> So he yeah, didn't like it that she was in Alabama and also didn't like that there was anyone distracting Martin Jr. from his studies. Um, and to be honest, though, it wasn't just him doubting the match. Coretta expressed some worry about marrying King just a few months before their wedding because they did get engaged. And she was still kind of like, I might ditch. Like, I don't know about this. I mean, he's a doctor and a reverend and was like, I'm in love with you on your second date. That's like super uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, he's I actually he's not yet. A yeah. Doctor he was in his doctoral program, which I think is why his dad was so like, Ooh, just finish it first. Yeah. That's threatening enough. <gasps> yeah. Um, but despite all of this pushback, um, the two were married on June 18th, 1953 in her mother's living room with the ceremony performed by King's father. So I guess he came around. But she made it clear that one part of the ceremony would be removed. She would never vow to blindly obey her husband. Love it. <laughs> Love it. That's almost been removed from, like, all of them All now. of them. I can't. And, like, yeah. I feel like it's mostly removed. They, like, so producer ha- can technically do services, and they have a whole book of ones you can pick from or mismatch. And, like, that's still, like, the traditional option. Yeah. But you most people choose around it and or reword it entirely because mm-hmm. it's absurd. Yeah. I also kind of feel like she was like, it was like since he was doing this same when it was kind of like a big F you to his dad. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, okay. After they were married, she finished her music degree and the couple moved to Montgomery, Alabama. And in 1954, Martin Luther King Jr. became the full-time pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist church in Montgomery. Coretta settled into her life as a pastor's wife, participating in the Baptist Training Union and Missionary Society, as well as the church choir and teaching Sunday school. I think she was definitely disappointed that she wouldn't be able to pursue a career in music, but soon their whole world was consumed by something much greater, the civil rights movement. Shortly after their arrival in Montgomery, the bus boycott started and they found themselves at the helm of the movement and with a newborn baby. So the boycotts officially officially started in December 1955. And as we talked about it in the Rosa Parks, year. it went for so long. I think it was like 385 days or yeah. something like that. Um, and it had also like kind of like been coming for a while. Like we talked about that with Claudette Colvin and at Rosa Parks. Like, again, we like to say that it just kind of happened one day, but it didn't. This was right. a very like strategic. It was thing. a Bruin. It was a Bruin. Um, as I tell my students regularly, the civil war didn't start or end. No, it's part of this country. And it's it still m- is. just morphing. Right. Um, so the boycott started in December and their first child, Yolanda had been born in November. So she has a newborn baby while all this is happening. Oh, wow. They were obviously very vocal about their involvement, and in and on December 23rd, 1955, their house was attacked. A bullet was shot through their front door while they were asleep with their newborn baby upstairs. And after this, they received constant death threats, and 
on January 30th, 1956, their house was bombed. Right. A white terrorist had thrown an explosive onto the front porch while Coretta and baby Yolanda and a friend of theirs were inside. Thankfully, they had like heard something and they ran to the back of the house so they weren't harmed. But news spread quickly. And by the time Martin got home, there was a crowd of people who were angry and ready to fight. They were just so ready to defend the King family. They were so upset. But even while standing outside of his charred home, he stuck to his message of nonviolence. He said, I want you to love our enemies, be good to them, love them and let them know that you love them, which I can't even imagine. (laughs) That's so difficult. Both of their parents swooped in immediately. Obviously they're like, uh, credit your house was just fucking bombed. Like, and basically they're like, you need to leave town to safety. Like, why don't you come with us? You come with us. And they're already like talking about splitting up the family. And, Coretta was just in the middle of all this and she just puts her foot down and she goes, no, she's like, I'm not running away from this. I'm going to stay here with my community, with my husband, and I'm going to fight this fight because this is bigger than any of us. And if I just run away, then they will have won. Right. Like that's exactly what they want is for me to run away. And she's like, I'm not going to do that. Um, author Octavia B. Vivian wrote that night, Coretta lost her fear of dying. She committed herself more deeply to the freedom struggle. Coretta, Coretta would later call it the time, the first time she realized how much I, I meant to Martin in terms of supporting him and what he was doing. So I think she kind of realized in that moment, she was like, okay, like I am important to this. I'm a part of this. I'm a part of this. So that's what they did. They stuck together and Coretta continued to do as much as she could to assist the civil rights movement while also having three more children, (laughs) Martin III, Dexter, and Bernice. Holy hell, having that many kids. Four children. That is so hard. I can't even imagine. Um, So all the while, obviously, like I'm not going to get into Martin Luther King Jr.'s story because it's so long and intense and he was so many places. Um, he is traveling across the U S preaching nonviolence and civil rights and getting arrested and attacked in 1958. He was stabbed by a deranged woman. Um, but that was like, like that wasn't even like a rate. Like she was a black woman who I think was just like out of her mind. Um, and on October 19th, 1960, he was arrested in a department store. Um, who knows for what, probably just shopping while black, who knows, Um, He was released three days later and then sent back to jail on October 22nd for driving with an Alabama license while being a resident of Georgia. And he was sent to jail for four months with hard labor for just for driving with the wrong license. Yeah. They're like weird. You have like, you know, Alabama plates, but you're like a resident of Georgia. They don't match up. And so he got four like months of hard labor. That like, punishment what the does not fuck? fit the crime. No, it does not. Um, so, but again, driving while black was exa- described. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so Coretta starts to become extremely worried for her husband. She was like, we are in, he's in a prison in like Alabama. There are a lot of white criminals in there who want to harm him. And the guards are not going to fucking protect him. And she starts to get really worried. <laughs> So she calls a friend of hers, Harris Wofford, and she just tells him, she's like, they're going to kill him. I know it. 
So Wofford calls his friend, Sergeant Shriver, and Sergeant Shriver talks to his brother-in-law, John F. Kennedy Jr., <laughs> who was currently running for president. I was like, I know the last name Shriver. Yep. <laughs> um, and so he's running for president, and he hears that this is happening, and so he calls the state authorities, and he pressures them into releasing MLK from jail. Good for Jeff. I know. And then he called Coretta personally, saying, I want to express my concern about your husband. Say it in a Boston accent, please. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I know that this must be very hard on you. <laughs> I understand you're expecting a baby. <laughs> so... <laughs> He said, I understand you're expecting a baby, and I just want you to know that I was thinking of you and Dr. King. If there's anything I can do to help, please feel free to call on me. And this is a famous call because this is what solidified the bond between the Kennedys and the Kings, and it also guaranteed him the black vote, basically. That's what people say. Smart. Because, I mean, smart move. Yeah, absolutely. And King was released shortly after and there was just this huge movement because then the Kings just came out and full supported him and I mean was this politically motivated probably it was like right around the election we can't ignore that but I also like he could have alienated a lot of white voters with this you know what I'm saying and so I don't know I don't it's know a how difficult to, choice. it's a difficult choice um but I also like to you know, kind of err on the positive side of this. Like, I think that he really did think that it was unjust. And I also thought that he thought that it would help him get more votes. Both can be true at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. Exactly. Um, And their relationship wasn't always perfect. Sometimes they felt let down by the Kennedys. Um, But they said they had a lot of respect for him. Because honestly, there's never a president that does everything perfectly. No. You know what I'm saying? There's not a person that does everything perfectly. Exactly. Um, But they always had respect for him. Um, And although she had uh, three kids at this point, um, Coretta was only getting more involved. So in April 1962, Coretta served as a delegate for the Women's Strike for Peace Conference in Geneva, Switzerland. Wow. With three babies at home and a husband on the road all the time. I don't know. I guess like the friends just took them in. But like, yeah, she goes to Switzerland to go to this conference. It's incredible. And in 1963, she gave birth to her fourth and final child, um, Bernice. And also in 1963, there is the famous March on Washington. So a lot is going on in this short period of time. And this is where, obviously, her husband gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. And then a few months later, she goes to the Women's Strike for Peace rally in New York. So they are just like, bam, bam, bam going to everything they possibly can. Right. It's like, so if you're like the leader of the movement and you show up, it feels like the movement gets stronger. Oh, absolutely. Because you're there and then people are like empowered to keep going. Yeah. Well, and I want to talk about the Women's Strike for Peace rally because this was not a civil rights thing. This was something that Coretta was, Coretta was passionate about on her, on her own. So this March was organized to celebrate the group's second anniversary. And it celebrated the successful completion of the limited nuclear test ban treaty, something that was very important to Coretta because, and I just think it's really important to mention this because she's really only remembered as kind of even just a background actor to the civil rights movement. 
but she was involved in a lot more. She had been involved in like peace activism since 1957 when she became one of the founders of the Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy, now called Peace Action. So she's been doing this for a while. (laughs) And we forget that later on, while her husband is giving speeches about civil rights, she was also giving speeches criticizing the Vietnam War in places like San Francisco and Madison Square Garden in New York. Like she's also on speaking tours, just talking about other things. It's pretty incredible. I, cause you know, I, I always assumed that she kind of like rode MLK's power and became powerful, but it sounds like she was powerful and then made the choice to continue that power. No, she absolutely did. And because the whole thing is like she was on the kind of peace train even earlier than he was. And he once said that she was the person who really taught him about peace and nonviolent action because she had been pushing it for so long. Like, that was her activism base, was, like, anti-nuclear war, anti-war, like, nonviolence. Like, he learned a lot of that from her. And, like, she learned it a lot from Gandhi, which she kind of, like, I think he also knew about Gandhi and stuff. But, like, that was one of the things they bonded over. Um, But in 1963, another huge blow hit their family and the country when Kennedy was assassinated. And it's really interesting because she describes, like, she was like, Oh, yeah, we were just told, like, don't worry, he's just wounded, he'll be fine. But then they sat together later that night watching the TV, and this uh, Walter Cronkite came on and was like, the president is dead. And she was like, my husband was visibly shaken because it kind of felt like Kennedy was one of our lifelines, one of our few people who your actually ally. gave a shit about this cause, you know, even if it was politically motivated, whatever. Um, but they kept going. They're like, well, Nothing's going to happen if we stop. So King is still traveling and preaching all over, which was getting more difficult for Coretta because even though she had her own things, like she did have to be home a lot with four children. And it's believed that her husband was having multiple affairs while he was away. Um, And King also openly admitted in a sermon that his secretary would have to remind him of their anniversary and Coretta's birthday and the kids' birthdays. And Coretta resented him sometimes for failing to call and check in on her and the kids when he was away for these long stretches of time. Or he would get an invitation to the White House and not include her. And it just, it started to like really wear on her, this kind of thing of like, we were supposed to be a partnership and now it kind of feels like you're taking the reins and finishing it on your own. Like, so what am I doing? Right. You know? I remember the, I, w- I was like probably late high school when I found, when I heard that Martin Luther King had cheated on Coretta. And I just remember being blown away by that. Yeah. And then it was like, I have to like, I have to remember that. And I think this podcast helps that all these big people are just people. Yeah. And that doesn't make it right or wrong. Obviously it's wrong if you're not in, in pre arranged open relationship to do that but it's just like I remember you know how like when you're a kid and you think everybody like oh these great people and then you realize most people are garbage yeah it just it really sucked but I also I think you're right I think it humanizes him Mm -hmm. and like 
it and it also sucks because it, she found out because the FBI had been yeah. wiretapping him for years. Yeah. And then kind of I think the story goes like they presented her with all of the evidence to be like, we're going to break them up. And yeah. then she was like, this fucking sucks. But also like the movement is bigger than this. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I don't know, because it was all a part to like smear him, basically. Right. And. Uh, yeah, it. And also, like, like, and some people think that it might not be true, but, like, I think it's probably true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, if you're confronted with a whole bunch of FBI evidence of, like, recorded yeah. phone calls and stuff, there's not a lot you can say to make it not true. Yeah. But I am very curious because apparently all of this information is going to be released in 2027, which will be a very interesting time to see, like, what did actually they, like, yeah. wiretap and Can't all that wait. stuff. Um, okay. She's feeling kind of left out, but even through all of this, through all the FBI stuff, through all the bullshit, she knew that there was a bigger purpose, so she stayed as a rock for him. When he would get down on himself, she would tell him, I believe in you, if that means anything, (laughs) which is sometimes all you need to hear is that, like, at least one person believes in you, because sometimes it feels, especially if you're a public figure, that, like, the whole world hates you. Oh, you know? criticism is so much louder than applause. It really is. Um, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is passed. They keep moving. In 1965, they participate in the Selma to Montgomery marches. And uh, by 1966, Coretta is starting to become more and more vocal about how women were treated in the civil rights movement. She was interviewed in New Lady magazine about this, and she said, not enough attention has been focused on the roles played by women in the struggle. By and large, men have formed the leadership in the civil rights struggle, but women have been the backbone of the entire civil rights movement. And people were kind of upset. They're like, how could you be critical of this incredible movement? And she was like, because women have been the ones who have made it possible for this to be a mass movement. And we're constantly being excluded at the top and being pushed out of conversations and meetings and like been asked to, you know, do all of this extra work and like take care of everyone's kids. And like, we want to also be at the forefront of this and like, we're being pushed out. It's such like the everyday trope of like, we even saw it happen during COVID. It's like, you're asking women to do a double shift of life. Yeah. Every day. Ugh, I still think of that photo of there was the side both by side are at work. Both of the parents at work. And the one is like changing a kid's diaper on like the floor of the bathroom with her, like, phone. With her phone. Yeah. And like the man is just like in office, like dressed for work, like, like <laughs> in this home office. Like, okay. <laughs> um, so she is speaking out about this. She's like, we need to see some change here. But in 1968, everything changed when her husband was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4th. She so was she there? No, no. So this is he's like walking he's in out of Memphis. a hotel room. Yeah, he's walking right? out of yeah. a hotel room. I always mix up in my head the Malcolm X one, which was yeah. very public. Oh and the Martin gosh. Luther King Jr. one, which was more like you've been hunted down at this place. I like. It's really interesting that we're doing this and what we kind of started this season with Betty Shabazz, who is Malcolm X's wife. And when I learned that she and her children had to see that, it was so upsetting. And I just like these 
I mean, I, I don't ever agree with random assassination, but mm-hmm. like we've done now, and I'm sure we've done several women who've, whose husbands have been assassinated. Yeah. And like we, I mean, we did Jackie Kennedy yeah. as well, like in this story. So like three women in this story from the exact same decade, half decade, yeah. all their husbands were assassinated. Yeah. Two of them in front of them. Yeah, exactly. Absurd. So um, she was out shopping with Yolanda, and when she got home, Jesse Jackson had called her with the news. She was devastated and completely overwhelmed with having to then tell her four small children that their father was gone. But she knew that she couldn't crumble, because after this, it felt like the nation was crumbling. Riots sprung up all over the U.S., including here in Baltimore, and she knew that she needed to be a beacon of strength and peace because that is the whole thing they were trying to get across. Yeah, the 1960s riots in Baltimore were pretty devastating yeah. to the city, and the, we didn't see anything even near like it until Freddie Gray died. No, absolutely. In the 2010s. Yeah. And so she immediately went to Memphis on a plane arranged by Robert F. Kennedy. Um, he, he's kind of like, oh, I know exactly what you're going through. Let me get you a plane so you can get there immediately. Right. Um, and they held his first funeral on April 5th at the R.S. Lewis um, Funeral Home in Memphis. Coretta demanded that it be an open casket because she thought it was important for people to see him. She stated... If a man had nothing that was worth dying for, then he was not fit to live. Mm. Again, just trying to like go through this whole thing like so strongly. And just four days after his death, she led a march of 50,000 people through Memphis. It was the march for the sanitation workers that her husband had planned and hoped to lead himself. That's what he was in town for, to lead this march. After this, the body was sent back to Atlanta where people wanted him to lie in state. But the governor refused, calling him an enemy of the United States. So they held a procession through Atlanta, traveling three and a half miles with 100,000 people. After the funeral, she took his place at the helm. And she was soon in New York at a peace rally. She used his notes that she had retrieved from his pocket when he was assassinated and but she wrote the rest of the speech herself and from there on out there was no mistaking that she was much more than just simply a housewife of the movement she started realizing her dreams of expanding the movement and she was like all right now that i'm running things we're going to include women and we're eventually you know going to include lgbt people and as early as december 1968 she called for women to unite and form a solid block of women power to fight the three great evils of racism, poverty, and war. In 1969, Coretta announced plans to establish the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, The King Center is now the official memorial dedicated to the advancement of his legacy and ideas. So she establishes this... um, this center and in the 80s she ends up being criticized by a man named Hosea Williams who said that she was commercializing her late husband because they were selling things like posters and cassette tapes of the I have a dream speech all through the foundation to which she was like isn't this the best way to go about it it brings in money for the foundation keeps his legacy alive 
and his family is the one controlling and distributing it. It's the Selena Cantania thing. It really is. Just Commercialize like, it if it keeps their memory and it's helping you. Right. And she's like, isn't it better if I'm the one fucking doing it? But this guy also said that gifts should be banned from Christmas. So I don't know if we can trust him. Um, <laughs> the Jehovah's Witness? I don't know what his deal was, but he was like really mad at Coretta. I saw him on the news yelling about it um but this is the thing he was like so mad about (laughs) they isn't jehovah's witnesses (laughs) (laughs) no i don't know if he was i just jehovah's witness don't celebrate holidays no they don't yeah that's the thing i think he i think he wasn't then because he liked christmas so much but didn't want presents he was like it's so disrespectful to jesus to have presents so he's a cindy luhuian yeah exactly (laughs) um but so that's going on and then for many years also coretta was involved in a lot of lawsuits with institutions such as boston university who owned about eighty three thousand of king's papers and um, she was like well they should be in the king center like they belong to us but the school was like he had we've written documentation that he donated his papers to his alma mater and it's also like if he wrote some of them while he was there that's intellectual property too right exactly um so she eventually loses the case because they had like like she just didn't really have too much of a case um and like some people like didn't like that she was getting wrapped up in all that um but of course so after he dies she's going on with all these things and this makes her a very interesting subject to the fbi so they start surveilling her just like her husband and they monitor her from 1968 until 1972 and they concluded that her selfless magnanimous decorous attitude is bellied by her actual shrewd calculating business-like activities which is like is it meant to be a bad thing because it sounds like it sounds mm. like she's really sounds like nice, you're complimenting but her. also super smart. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, can you believe it? Like, she said hello to that person and then shook that other person's hand in a business deal. What? <laughs> How dare How she? How dare she be nice to get ahead? <laughs> or just be nice and also be getting ahead. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so she is also, at this time, campaigning to get King's birthday made into a national federal holiday. I love it. I get a day of school. Exactly. <laughs> she said that there should be at least one national holiday a year in tribute to an African-American man. Seriously. And she said, at this point, he's the best candidate we have. <laughs> and still. And still. Um, and after 17 years, she fought for that for 17 years. She finally succeeded in 1986 when Martin Luther King Jr. Day was established. I mean, I feel like it's pretty good year. Let's, let's pick a new one. Like Frederick Douglass Day. We absolutely should have a Frederick Douglass Day. Denzel Washington Day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to let's just keep. Or we all go to the movies. <laughs> Um, Chadwick Boseman Day. <laughs> Got it. Oh, he definitely deserves one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sad. Um, and really, she spent the rest of her life just dedicating herself to various causes. Um, in 1983, she publicly urged an amendment to the Civil Rights Act to include gays and lesbians as a protected class 
And she often called out leaders of the civil rights movement and was like, you need to start including LGBT people. She once said, homophobia is like racism and anti-Semitism and all other forms of bigotry in that it seeks to dehumanize a large group of people to deny their humanity, their dignity, their dignity and their personhood. This sets the stage for further repression and violence that spreads all too easily to victimize the next minority group. It's literally a mirror image, the way that people are treated. And you can see it, how people, the same way that people used to use religious texts of different varieties to be like, this is why people of different races can't get married then they do that right to people with disabilities yeah. or living with a disability and people who are LGBTQ plus and this, that, and the other. It's like, come on. Exactly. You can't keep using the same excuses. Well, and she's seeing the bigger picture of it all. She's like, we can't just like want to claim our civil liberties and ignore others. Yo, and she was That's... born in 1927. She's like ahead of the curve. She absolutely is. Um, she was also very vocally against apartheid in the eighties and was arrested with two of her children while taking part in protests at the South African embassy in Washington, DC. Somebody's got to, somebody's got to, and she even took a 10 day trip to South Africa where she met Nelson Mandela while he was in prison. Stop. I know what she called one of the most meaningful moments of her life. In... I cannot believe that she was inspired by Gandhi, married I know. to Martin Luther King Jr., and then met Nelson Mandela. It's and obviously met Malcolm X. Yeah. Unbelievable. And JFK. Yeah. It doesn't belong in that category, but still. No. <laughs> um, in 2005, she... Um... Third Rock from the Sun. Yeah. <laughs> John Lithgow. <laughs> Uh, in 2005, um, Antioch College, her alma mater, created the Coretta Scott King Center as an experimental learning resource to address issues of race, class, gender, diversity, and social justice. Um, and the center opened in 2007 um, on the Antioch campus. So her name is on that. The center lists its mission as... The Coretta Scott King Center facilitates learning dialogue and action to advance social justice and its vision as to transform lives, the nation and the world by cultivating change agents, collaborating with communities and fostering networks to advance human rights and social justice. All in all. Coretta spent her entire life trying to amplify the voices of those who lacked one. She even became a vegan for the last 10 years of her life. But by the time she was 77, she was having some serious health issues. She was diagnosed with a heart condition, and she started experiencing a series of small strokes. And there was one big stroke she had where she simultaneously had a heart attack. She had a heart attack and a stroke at the same time. Jinx. And and she also discovered that she had advanced ovarian cancer. Oh, no. Triple jinx. jinx. Horrible. On January 14th, 2006, Coretta made her last public appearance in Atlanta at a dinner honoring her husband's memory. And on January 26th, 2006, she checked into a rehabilitation center in Rosarita Beach, Mexico. (laughs) Weird spot to be. Very weird spot. And apparently, I think she just kind of wanted to, like, go in peace Because she also, like, checked in under, like, a fake name. She didn't want the news cameras being like, Coretta, on her way out, mourning a legacy. Yeah, I I could see that being really frustrating. I think she just wanted to go on her own terms. So, 
She spent some time in Mexico, and she died in the late evening of January 30th, 2006, at the Rehabilitation Center in Rosarita Beach, Mexico. She had an eight-hour funeral at the New Birth Missionary Baptist Church in Georgia. Um, that was held on February 7th, 2006. Listen, I'm going to tell you that I have been to one African-American funeral at an African-American church. And this is the literal longest I've <laughs> ever been to. Is it longer than a Catholic wedding? Yes. <laughs> Katie? I mean, also, this was a friend from high school, so she was very oh, young yeah. and, like, died from cancer. So it was, like, really, really sad. Yeah. But, like, unnecessarily long. <laughs> and, like, I'm not saying, like, if I die, I don't want people to, like, have their say, but still, like... Yeah, eight hours is a long-ass time. That's a long funeral. Eight hours? That's eight a whole work day. hours. That puts the Montgomery bus boycotts to shame. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not to make light of her death. No. I'm terrible. Um, her daughter, Bernice, delivered her eulogy, and uh, there were many U.S. presidents in attendance. How could they not go? George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter. Um, they all attended with their wives, uh, except Barbara <laughs> Bush, who had a previous engagement. Um, <laughs> she was like, I'm busy. Plans. I'm sorry. <laughs> Too busy for um, the kids. <laughs> she was temporarily laid in a grave on the grounds of the King Center until a permanent place next to her husband's remains could be built. She had expressed to family members and others that she wanted her remains to lie next to her husband's in a really special place at the King Center. So on November 20th, 2006, the new sarcophagus containing both of their bodies was unveiled in front of their friends and families. It is a gorgeous tribute. It's basically like their sarcophagus on like a small brick island in the middle of a large pool. Wow. It's beautiful. She has been portrayed by legends such as Cecily Tyson, Angela Bassett, and Carmen Ijogo in film and television. She has obviously won countless awards and been praised with many honors, including being inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. And I just hope that we can learn something from her life and her story because one thing that she was so very clear on was that the work should never stop. She said, struggle is a never ending process. Freedom is never really won. You earn it and you win it with every generation. Yo, rest later. And that's the story of Credit Scott King. Amazing. Amazing. It's so cool the things she did um, like post MLK's life. Well, and all the things she was doing before, like that she doesn't get like a lot of like credit for. Right. It's like I almost called her cocktail the keeper because I felt like she really thought it was her mission to just like keep MLK's legacy alive, which she definitely did. Like yeah. she pushed for like every memorial and, you know, day of remembrance and like everything every year on the anniversary of his death. She was like, we're going, we're having a thing. We're like, you know, talking about him. She kept the conversation going, which I think probably a lot of people didn't want to happen, specifically like the FBI who was fucking surveilling And her. like the like, people <laughs> who were like assassinating him and giving him death threats. Like there's a lot of people who wanted him to disappear. Yeah. And she just wouldn't shut up about it. She was like, no, we're going to keep this going. And 
I'm going to keep his work going. It wasn't just talking about him. It was also talking about, okay, what's the next step? What's the next step? It's so interesting because that's why I love the phrase like old wives tale. Yeah. Because she was telling the story, but she was fortunate enough to be in a century where she could also like freely do the work. Yeah. She didn't just have to talk about it. Yeah. Oh, there we go. So great. Are you ready for another cocktail? I'm ready. Let's do it. Welcome to Hashtag History. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And if you're a history nerd or even a history hater, this is the podcast for you. Even if history was your least favorite subject in school, we can guarantee you will like this podcast because we talk about all the things that your history textbooks did not. Things like how the Bonnie Prince Charles and his Jacobite uprising was a bit of a disaster. Yeah, or how the pharaoh Akhenaten was so disliked by Egyptians that they literally purged his name from nearly all of their records and pretended like he had never existed. And we do all of this while drinking and rating a custom-made cocktail specific to that week's topic. So grab a drink, take a seat, and hang out with us each week as we learn all about history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and and corruption. corruption. Welcome back. All right. Part two. Part two. Peaches and oranges. Yeah, (laughs) I know. Not a super long part two. Okay. Um, But an interesting one. Nonetheless, we're closing out season nine with a spy. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. I'm so excited. Season 10 is coming up. And guys, do we have some bangers (sighs) in store for you? We're like, you know what? We've been doing a lot of like really obscure women for a bit. Like, yeah. we're, we're <laughs> for a couple to, seasons, we've been yeah. doing like we did all diamonds in the rough in seven, mm-hmm. and then we did season eight. We did like a, like a mixture. mixture, yeah. And then this one was all women of color, so mm-hmm. we got some bangers and some not. And season ten is just gonna blow the roof off the house. It's gonna be so much research, yeah, because. So many of them are bangers. Oh my gosh. <laughs> They're going to be long, long episodes. Oh um, but so also, buckle up. Uh, next week will be like an in-betweener type episode. Yep. Our, uh, our one week off a year. Yep. Where we throw up something small <laughs> and we'll be on vacation together. So you, mm-hmm. if you follow us on our personal accounts, you will see those pictures. Oh yeah. It's going to be so fun. Uh-huh. Can't wait. <laughs> um all right well we need to get into this cocktail because it looks delightful okay this is called invisible secrets Ooh. and it is an ounce and a half of bourbon a half an ounce of sweet vermouth um two dashes of bitters an orange and you top it with champagne so okay. none of this is shaken it's all stirred, all stirred like you would with a bourbon drink and i don't feel like we mix bourbon and champagne very often no we it's don't usually I'll, I'll like a clear liquor. Perfect. Well, cheers. Mm, that's tasty. Very interesting. I really like this. I didn't know what to expect. Yeah, it's really nice. It tastes like, I mean, it tastes like a Manhattan because that's basically what it is. Just topped with champagne. A bubbly Manhattan. Exactly. Love it. Oh, it's fantastic. What a great way. I feel like we really nailed it with 
so drinks with our drinks season. this season. We really tried hard to bring you some bangers. Ninety percent of the drinks this season were very good. You yep. can all contact Miss Krista to know <laughs> five star details on each drink. And Miss Krista, let us know which one was your favorite. Oh my gosh, I yeah. would love to know like which from one this season and Mr. Krista because he drinks them all too. Yes, Mr. Krista. Yeah, Mr. Krista, <laughs> what's your favorite drink? We're singing. That is a take on the song Sister Christian. Got it. Um, Miss <laughs> Kirsten, I hope you play that for your husband. Yeah, she will. <laughs> um, Alabama. Okay, so. <laughs> we're here. <laughs> we are. What? Okay. What do you know about Mary um, Bowser Richards? I didn't know anything until earlier tonight when you told me she was a spy in the Civil War. Uh-huh. So that's what I know. <laughs> that's all I know. Okay. Most people know either nothing or wrong information about okay. her, so I just splice out a lot of that because um, everything is either like unsubstantiated, mm-hmm. untrue, or embellished, um, just because of the time period and because of her profession. You just couldn't know a lot about her, and we yeah. find that with spies pretty often. Mm-hmm. But the biggest disservice to her is her name. Mary um, Bowser or Bowser. It's B-O-W-S-E-R. I would think that was Bowser. Bowser. Yeah. That is her first husband's last name, and they were only together for, like, a very short period of time. (sighs) So she has a ton of aliases, but her maiden name is Richard. So Mary Richard. I hate when that happens, when it's, like, someone who's literally just, like, a blip on their radar, and then it's forever their name right and like through all history and the thing is well we're gonna get right into it okay (laughs) mary jane was born near richmond virginia around 1846 so this is right before i mean civil war percolating like Mm -hmm. heavy percolating and um she's born to enslaved parents and obviously because of that was a slave from birth to owners Eliza Baker Van Lu and John Van Lu. Um, John Van Lu is a wealthy merchant slave owner, obviously. His wife Eliza and daughter Elizabeth are secret abolitionists. <gasps> no. Yes. What? Fun. Fun. Things okay. Are fun. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good time. Wow. Uh, my slave owner's wife is a secret abolitionist, and so is their daughter. Oh my God. Love it. Okay. It's like the Gilmore Girls <laughs> if they were totally different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if they were not at all similar to what they were. If I rewrote Gilmore Girls, they would be them. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. So. Um, the first recorded, like directly related incident about her is from her baptism. And that is where the name Mary Jane comes from. So I don't know if her slave parents named her a different name and I don't even know like her parents' names, but Mary Jane is the American baptized name that we know her by. Okay. Um, but This is interesting because she was baptized at the Van Lu family church instead of the Baptist church where all the other slaves were baptized. So I'm not sure 
because we don't really know what she looked like, I'm not sure if it was like a Sally Hemings situation where she was very light-skinned and therefore possibly more desirable for this family, but she's definitely treated different from other slaves. Okay, and she's not like the child of the owner correct okay so that's for sure not the child of the owner as far as i know she's not the child of the owner so it's very interesting that like there's this like kind of bonus relationship but i couldn't find out why okay very interesting it is and that's only the first clue that they're taking special notice of her so i mean she may have been a child of rape i really don't know okay because not long after the baptism she gets sent north out of virginia to either new jersey or pennsylvania to go to school okay so they send her in the 1850s i'm assuming at this point to a school in the north um why i don't understand that's so interesting it's very interesting or is it like the the daughter and the mom kind of trying to they are okay um because john is gonna die soon and then they kind of take over but I, the daughter and the mom definitely took a special liking to her. Okay. Now, we know that Elizabeth, who's the daughter, definitely went to, like, a Quaker school up okay. in the north. But we don't know if this is the same school that Mary went to. So a lot of records, you'll hear, like, Mary went to a school with, like, the Quakers. And, you know, the Quakers are very accepting of different races in the United States from very early on, but we mm-hmm. don't know where she went to school. So people say it because they're assuming, but they say it was such finality and they might be wrong. Okay. What I learned about this story is that historians get really pissed when they listen to podcasts and get on YouTube videos and they state things as fact that we don't know. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm trying to be very like, like judicious. blatant about yeah. like, we don't know. Here's the story. This is the best we can tell the story. Right. But keep in mind, it might not be 100% mm-hmm. true. Exactly. I spilled. <laughs> it's okay. All right. So she's up in the North going to school. Then in 1855, Mary goes to Liberia in, wow. in Western Africa what? as a part of a missionary trip. So this religious trip to Western Africa... Paid for by her owners. What? And, you know, eventually, five years later, she's living in Liberia for five years. She returns to Richmond, but not as a slave, but a paid servant. Okay. It's a very... I'm, like, so happy for her, but I I don't understand why it's happening. I don't either. (laughs) I think that's why her story is so compelling. Everybody's like how was her life like this it doesn't make sense in civil war era virginia that's a right southern that's a state. southern state through they and through from the union yeah the majority like of their fighting forces were from virginia it's where it, it's we'll get there okay okay okay, <laughs> okay. so I do want to talk about the Van Loos here for a moment john dies kind of in the middle of this and then eliza and elizabeth emancipate all their slaves <gasps> They do keep most of them, but as paid servants. So oh, now, my God. Yeah, they're spending, like, all this money to... But they had this big, like, fortune. So yeah. they're, like, spending it to pay their slaves and then still bringing in money because they have, like, money and a business. Because that's normally how a business operates. Right. Like and she has oh. a son. So, like, her son is just taking over the role of, like, the business owner. And he's also, like, yeah, free the slaves. Fine. 
And also, I think stories like this are so important because it shows that people totally could have done it. We knew it was wrong. We knew it was wrong, and we knew it was possible to have farms and businesses succeed and survive without the use of slave labor. It's just that people didn't want to do it. Greed. Greed and racism. Oh, yes. There, I think people often counted as like oh but like we wouldn't have been able to do america if it hadn't been for this and it's like no we absolutely could have it's just that there really was like this fear i feel like of like well if we can't be above black people then like what are, are we, we doing right? here yeah. like <laughs> what's even the point yeah what's going on you know what i'm saying and i feel like we often just are like oh no they're just being shrewd business people and it's like no <laughs> They're not. <laughs> They're not. They're being assholes. <laughs> right. So then Elizabeth, um, who's the daughter, um, between 1837 and like 1844, or maybe it's after that. I couldn't really get the nail any dates down here. She's using all of the inheritance from her dead father to purchase and free family members of her slaves that have been bought from other people. So, like, the people who were her slaves that she emancipated, now she's like, do you know where your child was sold? Do you know where your husband is sold? And she's using all of her money from her dad's death to buy these people and set them free so they can be with their family members. What an angel. Elizabeth Van Loo. What? Shout out. We can do a whole separate episode on her. I'm going to keep bringing her up because she's super fucking cool, but I'm kind of kind of covering them both at once. Really, this is a duo episode. Um... So, April 16th, Mary gets married to Wilson Bowser, and the ceremony took place at the same church that she was baptized in. But four days after the wedding, Confederate troops opened fire on Fort Sumter. This is the first battle of the Civil War, four days after she gets married. Oh, my God. The... Happy newlyweds, obviously, is relatively short-lived. And by the end of the war, she's already going by her maiden name again. Obviously, this isn't the end of the war. But as far as we know, her husband, we think, joined the Union forces Uh to fight for the North. And then we don't think she ever saw him again. Okay. So he may have died. But they were already separated. Like, it's really weird. By the time he joined, they were, like, already separated. It didn't seem like a very happy marriage. Okay. I was going to say, because I, I mean, I can't even imagine keeping track of anyone before internet or cell phones or anything. People could literally just disappear. I'm sure they didn't have dog Um, tags. I'm sure (laughs) people didn't care about the black military No. Like, they were just frontline you know treated like trash like you're disposable okay but we don't she could have heard from him again and but we just him don't down. know we just don't know okay um before the civil war elizabeth the daughter had already been working with anti-slavery union sympathizers in virginia and would send information north about what was happening in richmond during the civil war Mary starts to participate in Elizabeth's pro-union underground espionage ring that, again, is operated by Elizabeth. So the war starts, and Elizabeth Van Loo goes, great, I'm going to start a spy espionage ring. What? 
And then Mary, who has been there since birth, is like, chill, I'm going to work for you. What? So these women are starting aspiring for the North. I'm blown away. In Virginia. I'm blown away. I know. Okay. So Elizabeth starts working at Libby Prison, which is a Confederate prison. They're holding Union soldiers, and she's, like, helping people with escape plans <gasps> and sending messages and passing information. Then she brings Mary in to work at this prison, and Mary is volunteering. And it's a prison, but it's, like, a huge warehouse where they're holding people, so they don't, like, have cells and stuff. You know what I mean? So it's pretty yeah. easy to sneak in and out. And she, Mary is delivering extra food to the soldiers who are having food taken away. And she's bringing clothing and delivering handwritten messages <gasps> back and forth. The espionage ring is called Richmond Underground and was extraordinarily successful. We don't know exactly what intelligence was collected because most spying stuff is burned like right afterwards. But we do know that this espionage ring was noted by General uh, Benjamin Butler, George Sharp, and General Ulysses <gasps> S. Grant, who later becomes the president of the United States. UEG. Gotta love him. Yeah. So that's the first president that she's in contact with. The first. Okay. Yes. Because the second president that she comes into contact with wasn't really president at all. <laughs> As the story goes, Elizabeth Van Loo suggests to the wife of Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, that Mary be a slave in the Confederate White House. You're going to have, I got an opportunity for you. <laughs> Would you love to be a slave in the White House? That's like going on The Price is Right and winning a trip to Baltimore. That is like such a slap in the face. Right. <laughs> it is. But now you're a slave in the enemy's White House. What? And Okay, so not even like the D.C. White House. Yeah. Like the bullshit White House. Yeah, the one in Virginia. So now Hold on. they think. Is there actually like an ex-White House in Virginia um, where Jefferson lived? I don't know lived? if it's still there. Okay. I, it probably is. I'm sure we didn't destroy it because you know how we love the Confederacy we here. love <laughs> it. You know how America loves the Confederacy? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. now they're taking a person into fake White House that they think is illiterate. So they're talking oh. in front of her. They're leaving plans out on tables, and she's just collecting laundry. I'm just dusting the paper. I'm just here. I'm. <laughs> I'm just. I'm just listening in on your tea time. I'm, I'm just, just writing things in lemon juice like a normal <laughs> fucking person. Oh my god! So I, I just. It's very interesting. We know that she was in the company of. Southern President Jefferson Davis. I should call him, what's it called when you reject a country? Treason. Treason President Jefferson Davis. Or TP. <laughs> right. <laughs> Duh. Toilet paper. Toilet paper President <laughs> Jefferson Davis. It's, I'm getting a tote bag. <laughs> Toilet paper <Just> President <laughs> Davis. And Mary. So <laughs> Mary, we know, was in contact with him um, at least a little bit. People don't know to the extent. 
Some historians argue this is a full-time position, and she was working at the Confederate White House and passing information to this spy ring the whole time. Some people are like, she went in and did some jobs and left and did some jobs and no big deal. I mean, okay. still a big deal. Like, Still a big deal. Yeah. Whatever you're doing to get in there. So she, from a quote from her, um, was, I was, I went into President Davis's house while he was absent, pretending to be getting laundry in order to look for documents related to the war efforts. So we know that that had been said. Um, we also know that there's an article in um, this thing called like recollections of Thomas McNiven and his activities in Richmond during the American civil war, which is, wow. Nobody likes that title at all. That's (laughs) horrible. Just call it something else. My God. But in it, he said that there was a colored quote, a colored girl, Mary in the espionage ring who participated, who had, a practically perfect memory or like something to that effect. So maybe not end I quote, but he said, like, <laughs> there is- and I summarize <laughs> <laughs> and I paraphrase <laughs> and I, and I paraphrase slash plagiarize. So, he, he was like, there's somebody with picture. There's a colored girl named Mary with picture perfect memory in the white house, like working for the North. Like that's in his memory and written down in the history books. So we know that there is this Mary person and we know that Mary existed and was in cahoots with Elizabeth. So they've got to be the same person. All signs Come lead to on. Yes. Mary. Okay. Love it. So she had a number of pseudonyms, but Ellen Bond is not one of them. <gasps> oh, I thought it was going to be one. Okay. No. People get really excited and say it is, but it's not. Um, Ellen, yeah. Ellen Bond. Wait, it's Bond. Bond. Ellen Bond. Double O four. I don't know why four. Okay. Now, we there's a couple of things that are told about her that we do not think are true. We do not think that she set fire to the Confederate White House uh, to flee Richmond. But if she did, I wish. I wish. I wish. Um, we do not think that she was smuggled out of the city of Pittsburgh in a cartload of manure. That's Ooh. another story you'll hear. Yeah, I don't care for that one. No, I so don't want to even be part of it. Definitely vote that one off the island. But Richmond fell to the north, of course. And a few days after the fall of Richmond, spoiler alert, <laughs> the South lost. <laughs> if you were to ask Dolly Parton's Good Time Rodeo, <laughs> they won. <laughs> Listen. It's all perspective based. <laughs> they still got Trump elected, so I don't know what I think anymore. If you were to ask Kid Rock, they won. My name is Kid. <laughs> bang the bang boogie boogie. Um, Casey loves to yell that line at me. Um, he knows the whole thing. It's a really weird, weird. Okay, so it started questions in me as a child because the front Kid of Rock. that CD. He's giving the middle finger, but his mm. thumb's out. And I still don't know whether to do thumb out or thumb in for middle finger. Mm. Well, you, you know what? My rule of thumb <laughs> <laughs> is to do the opposite of what Kid Rock Little, does. Thumb in. <laughs> thumb in for the middle finger. Tell us if we're right or wrong. <laughs> you know, he has a, a bar 
called Kid Rocks, like Donkey Honky Tonk. <laughs> no. And it has a very steep stage that people get injured on all the time. <laughs> I'm terrified. It's like Kid Rocks downtown Donkey Honky Tonk uh, or something uh, crazy now like I that. Have to go. Now we must go. Okay. Um, it's in my DNA to put my thumb out. Anyways. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. So. <laughs> the South Falls. Mary's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be a teacher for former slaves in the city. This makes total sense. She does this for a couple of years. Not but two years after she starts doing this, she's like, you know what? I'm going to start using the name Mary Richards again because that's like my name. And I'm also going to found a school and the school's going to be in Georgia and um in this school I'm gonna teach students during the day and adults at night and then I'm gonna teach Sunday school classes on the weekends and she taught them all by herself <gasps> at one point she wrote a letter to the superintendent of Georgia schools and asked to go by the name Mary Garvin and we're all just like, what? Um, so people didn't even put together. She had been remarried for a couple months and then divorced again. People didn't put together that this letter from Mary Garvin was Mary Bowser slash Mary Richards for a very long time. Like 2019, they just connected the dots on this. Wow. Like figuring out it was her. She gave at least two lectures in the North in the 1860s about her education, about her travel to Liberia, and about her wartime exploits. When she was giving these lectures, she went by a different name to protect her identity um, because she is a black woman speaking openly about politics and education right after the Civil War. Mm. In the 1950s, a member of the Bowser family told NPR that she inadvertently discarded a book that may have had her writing in it, and they thought that it could have been her journey or her journal. But most historians are like, this is pretty unlikely. She was only married to Bowser for a very little time. This right. seems like an attention grab. Um but NPR kind of reported some of the stuff this family said as fact. And that's where a lot of this misinformation comes from because NPR is such a fucking NPR. NPR. <laughs> so reputable that people are like, it's true. It must be true. Yeah. Because when you hear something on NPR, like you rarely think that they like make mistakes. Right. So like, it's almost, do you think that it's like a curse in the end? That, oh, I like, do. Tom Brokoff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look what happened. Walter Cronkite. Um, <laughs> But you know, like I feel like it is, it it's a it's a hard and I just like cross to bear of like being so careful all the time that when you do make mistakes, it is so hard. Listen, I'll tell you firsthand. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't help it. I'm sorry. I'll tell you firsthand. Rule of thumb. Um, <laughs> this is what needs to happen. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like I just yeah. feel like it is. Um, it's hard because as we were talking about, like, it's hard to admit that, like, people like Martin Luther King make mistakes. Yeah. People like NPR make mistakes. Make mistakes. They don't know. They yeah, don't know. It happens. It happens. Okay. So Lois 
Levine wrote a novel based on her life called The Secrets of Mary Bowser in 2013. Um, a play called Lady Patriot based on her espionage was premiered in California in 1987. There was a made-for-TV movie about the friendship between Bowser and Van Loo, oh. which is super cute, and it's called A Special Friendship. And then, <laughs> I mean, I wish it had a better name, but that's fine. <laughs> it's a... Uh, Maybe should have been the name it of my It sounds like a lesbian romance film. <laughs> Which a I period also romance see. film. I also want to see. <laughs> um, and then um, the heroine in a 2017 novel called An Extraordinary Union by Alyssa Cole is. That's a much better name than yes. a special friendship. <laughs> it's also based on her. So here's all I have to say. We know that Mary was a strong woman with big beliefs. We just aren't sure how much of her story is true versus folklore. But all the same, a tale has to exist for a tall tale to be born. And that is Mary. Um, Can we put that on a tote bag? I love that. Did you write that? I did. Can you repeat it? A tale has to exist for a tall tale to be born. I love right? that. Like, yes! that's what I kept thinking when I was researching. Like, it doesn't matter if it's true or not true. It happened, and that's what made people excited. Well, and you know what? It's why we do fictional characters. Yes. Because these stories are being told because women were fucking cool. Right. <laughs> it's like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't get, like, when we did that, like, female folk tale episode earlier this season where we were just talking about all these different folk heroines from different cultures it's like these came out of some badass women like right they didn't just write these out of the blue like they are inspired so i love that quote i think it should be on a tote bag um and yeah so <laughs> i think we need to talk about these two women together in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Wow. Okay. Um, well, women have been, you said that, Coretta said, women have been the backbone. And my God, of everything. Of everything. I mean, Elizabeth, Eliza, Coretta, Mary, these women were running the show. They really were. Because I feel like it's what happens when, like, the men think that they're so smart and they're like, we're running the show. And they're like, okay, really? Because you're not paying attention to these fucking issues. You know what I'm saying? And it's how I felt when like Elizabeth and Eliza are like, okay, yeah, you can think that you're running a slave plantation and whatever. Like I'm going to let you think that, but we're going to be establishing something much greater and longer lasting than this fucking bullshit. You oh, know what I'm absolutely. saying? Absolutely. Let's talk about how <laughs> um how when John died, they ran their house like badass bitches. Because women have always been capable of doing so. And guess what Coretta did? The same thing. The same thing. It's like, okay, you're gone. And that they also did the same thing and that they weren't just like, because they could have been like, okay, we're going to run things just as he did. We are capable of that. They were capable of running it and changing it mm. because they weren't just like, yeah, we're going to keep running the plantation and like gathering the corn, whatever the hell they do. They're like, 
we are going to make a better business, a more profitable business, a more sustainable business by freeing these people, paying people to do work, which every business does. I don't know why we think that it's okay for plantations not to. Um, and they also, and I think that's what Coretta did. She was like, I'm going to take the movement and I'm going to expand it because there are other people who are fighting for rights that we are ignoring because like, it's not like she really truly believed that an injustice against, against one person is an injustice for all. It's a, I'm more than a housewife. I'm more than a slave. I am so much more, and I'm going to yeah. show you. I'm more than a slave. I'm more than a daughter. I'm more than every other qualifier that we put on women. Yeah. You know, like, I love that that meme or whatever that it's like, oh, like, why would you rape someone? Like, that's someone's daughter. That's someone's wife. And it's like, let's just that's cut someone. all that crap. Let's just say that's someone. Yeah. That's a person. Like, let's not qualify them because, like, they have to fit into a category if you not to assault them. Yeah. They, like, they, they have, you have to have an emotional connection to not right. treat them like garbage. Exactly. But it's also true that, like, when you were talking about Coretta being like, I'm not going to run away. I'm going to keep showing up. Yeah. And that's like, Mary could have very easily moved north. She could have stayed in Liberia. No. She had she so, didn't. she had so many options to leave and it seems like the van lu family would have let her oh they would have totally i'm showing up well it's women putting themselves in a position where they can do things because again she didn't have to stay coretta did not have to take the mantle like she could have been exactly what martin luther king jr's father wanted her to be Mm -hmm like a silent housewife. Right. And she just wasn't going to do that. But and they're both focusing on the movement. And it's they the are same movement. The greater cause. A hundred years apart. The well, same movement. It's just like you said during my story, like people think that like the Civil War started and ended at a certain date. And it has always been around because it is part of our history because this country was built on inequality and slavery and it was built on these things so it's not just going to go away just because someone won a war you have fucking again kid rock honky tonk donkey tonk (laughs) putting girls in confederate flag bikinis (laughs) we're like still it's a hundred years let's get rid of that come on like it will never be you know what if you like sweet tea is your southern hospitality identity fine but like can we get rid of this obvious racist symbol and he's in this treason president this this tp president um (laughs) well and i think that that was also a binding thing between these women is because when they were kind of done their big thing they still weren't done yeah they invested in the future which we talk all the time about women doing you know i just feel like coretta scott king opened up the king foundation and was like i am going like established martin luther king jr day she's like i am going to make sure that future generations are educated about this well they're both speakers yeah and then mary opened up a school she was like i'm going to teach people because also it's like a stereotype that like Oh, like women just become teachers. And it's like, yeah, well, maybe it's because teachers are really important and women can see the bigger picture about like, we need to educate the next generation 
because we need to keep things moving forward. Specifically, if there aren't schools that allow people like you. Mm-hmm. If you're going to open a school, I think that's a lot why women got involved in teaching. It's like, we're going to teach the young girls. We're yeah. going to teach the minority students because the men weren't doing it. They were doing private tutors and rich kids uh, yeah. schools. Or even also true that women took control of educating immigrants, both mm-hmm. male and female. So, like, if you think about Irish kids in New York that were not allowed to go to school. Yes, they're white kids. Yes, they're male. But also, they didn't have a place in society. No, they didn't. Well, and I also think it's interesting that we have in both of these stories kind of, like, examples of that, like people in power doing the right thing was possible and it always was possible. Like I thought I saw, I saw a lot of loose. That's exactly the thing. Yes. You have these people that legitimately have a social position that they could lose or it could harm them to be decent humans. Mm. And like, you know, we, I think, can and should be a little more critical of JFK because he was in a, <laughs> he was trying to be fucking president, you know? But, like, the thing I like about the Van Loos is that they were doing it just because, like, they didn't really have anything to gain. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. they, and, and that's the whole thing is, like, these right decisions were always possible. They were. But do you know what's interesting? I think, so, people who are new money I think are more likely to are more likely to make a good decision but lose power from it. People that are old money are less likely to make a new decision or a decision like that, but they don't have to worry about it. Like JFK, the Kennedys and the Van Loos did not have to worry about losing their societal position. Right. Because but they were less likely yeah. to make that decision because they were raised in a situation where they wouldn't have seen that to be a good decision. Right. So they were kind of breaking the mold for their families. Yeah. But also they were old money. Like they didn't. Right. But they were confident enough to know I'm yeah. not going to lose all this. It's yeah. very weird. It's also I think it's a very good distinction to make because. Yeah. What do you do when someone is like if I do this, like I my me and my my family and I could be put out. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a new money, person, if you're a new money person, because you you've probably if you're new money, you've lived in a situation where you were less fortunate, so you're more likely to sympathize. But also, yeah. you know, you could lose everything. Yeah. Well, so that's weird. I mean, and it's also like the the classic trio of like we need stories that look at race, class, and gender. From all different From angles. all different angles. And, like, I want to, like, and I think that that's why these women were so keen on educating because their foundations, you know, Mary's school for people that didn't have access to school and, you know, Coretta's King Foundation are all building up to where now we have whole programs dedicated to looking at race, class, and gender. And, like, what are the next steps? Because... It never ends. I think that some people think that like, oh my God, isn't it over yet? Like, aren't we done talking are about st- this? Are they going to play the race Oh card? my God. Yeah. And it's like, no, we're never done because there's always work to be done because there's always someone who is being excluded. And I like, and there's always someone who is being harmed. Yeah. And it's not that, oh, okay, well we fixed that problem. So everything's done. 
It's like, no, we're always doing more work to make people feel more seen and heard. And I feel like both of these just very gutsy women. Yeah. Did that. And we're doing the work that we're continuing today. And I mean, this, this could not have been a better ending to a season of all women of color Mm -hmm. for these two women who not only worked for themselves and women like them, but were working for the greater good of everybody around them with people of different races and different religions and different understandings. Like they both had a global impact. They went to different countries and like tried to really change the world. Yeah. And also I just think it's incredible that we ended our season on like the beginning of the civil war and the civil rights movement. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, there is something very... It's very American history of us. But it in, is. But not purposeful no. in any way. <laughs> and, it, and in a really cool way. And I think it's also great that we ended our season because it's not something that we are always super positive about. But on these two very religious women, yeah, they both have, a, like, a hugely Christian background. But they actually lived it instead of just speaking yeah. it. And I think one of our biggest critiques of any religious institution is when you say you're something but then you act differently yeah and these women were like this is what i believe and i'm gonna put it out into the world that's exactly right Mm. all right well are you ready to toast so ready Allie. who would you like to toast this evening so i would like to toast to the true stories and the embellished ones (laughs) I love when family members tell a story about me and they've told it so many times that they start adding details that didn't actually exist. And I I think that it just means that the the people who love you are more highly proud of you than you know and I think that that's where a lot of embellished stories come from. Yeah. So to the true stories and to the Ones that are a little bit bigger. Mm. Cheers. Cheers. All right. I'm going to toast women who are often sidelined, which I think is a lot of the women that we cover on this show. Honestly, it's applicable. (laughs) Um, It's very frustrating to me that she is still mostly known as just Dr. King's wife. She had her own life, her own causes, and she has her own legacy. And I hope that someone maintains her legacy the way that she preserved her husband's because she deserves it. Mm. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Allie, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Don't get mad. Ah! <laughs> Okay. I can't promise anything. <laughs> so I told you I was rereading Twilight. Oh, I love it. Okay. Yes. So I'm not promoting Twilight, but it kind of. Okay. So remember several years ago, right after Twilight came out, Stephanie uh-huh. Meyer was writing that book from Edward's point of view. Uh-huh. And it got leaked and she quit writing it. Uh-huh. I remember. And then it came out this year. Something Dawn, right? Midnight Sun. Midnight Sun. That's so it. So I'm reading Midnight Sun. <gasps> How is it? I think it might be a masterpiece. <gasps> so, so here's the thing about it. Remember how she got criticized for being kind of like a bad writer? Yeah. And like it was really hard on her. Well, this book, she can only use the dialogue between Bella and Edward that already happened. <gasps> but 
she, Edward can't know what she's thinking. So it's it's like she's doing the story, but a completely different angle. And you get to see the Cullens fighting about whether or Ooh. not he should be going after Bella and whether or not he should be seeing them at night, like seeing her at night and all these things. And it's just really, really good. I forgot that that book happened and I'm going to read it. It just came out in 2020, like I a couple months ago. I also love the Twilight book series and I've obsessed with Edward. So I will absolutely read that. Maybe I'll get it for the beach. Oh, it's be my beach so read. good. Take the okay. dust cover off so people don't judge you. Okay. But I, <laughs> I'll leave it on. I'll be brave. I'm only half done and I truly, truly love it. <sighs> Excellent. Okay. I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Okay. Because I want to talk to you about it, but I'll wait. I can't wait. I'll wait. I don't um, want to give it any spoilers. <laughs> so I am going to promote tonight an Instagram that I found recently. I love a good Instagram. <sighs> this girl is so talented. So her name is Maris Jones. And she her Instagram handle is the Maris Jones. And she is an artist who creates these incredible time hop videos. Okay. So she has this incredible wardrobe of just clothes and wigs and makeup and sunglasses and accessories. And she'll do videos of like, okay, like here's what a, like a yearbook photo would look like from the fixed 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way until now. And she does decade things, but she'll like, she, edits them together so it's like you know like like a snap or like she'll be like tuning a radio and the radio will like the whole set changes and she makes everything herself and then she'll do videos on like I wanted to make a camcorder and she makes everything out of like paper and cardboard and she paints it she paints all the sets and all the little things and like she'll make like a guitar and she does these tributes to like specifically which I love like the Beatles where she'll like it's Paul McCartney's birthday. So she dresses up as him in every era and like dubs over the songs. Incredible. I can't, I'm going to actually show you the videos after we're done because she's so fucking good. I will tell you one thing about the internet. It has made me learn how talented the average person is. She's so talented. And I think because of this Instagram, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. She like got a job at like Vogue. So like she like does videos for them. Like she's the Maris Jones now. I just, I'm obsessed with her. I also dug deep in her personal life and I found out that she's dating this guy in a band who he's in a band with his twin brother. So they have a twin band. I was like, all right, got to check them out now. I uh, haven't checked out the band yet, but I'm going to love it. But love very like, band. cause also like I love like seventies rock and roll and like, that's kind of like her aesthetic, her aesthetic and like the band's aesthetic. So Perfect. I was like, mm, okay. So the Maris Jones Instagram, her videos and photo shoots are incredible. Perfect. Okay. That's it. Love it. Well, thank you guys for joining us on the season finale of season nine. We're about to be, we're on the <laughs> precipice of big things. The precipice. Big things. Um, we can't wait for you to join us for season 10. It's going to be so fun. Uh, we're taking a break next week. Um, we'll still be releasing something. It'll just be a little different. Yeah. Because we're on vacay. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be fun. And you can join us on patreon which is where you get the most love and instagram and facebook and twitter and everything so hang out with us if you would like to 
And we want you to never forget that well-behaved women have matching socks. Oh, they do. And they rarely make history. <laughs> Goodbye. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.